Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin should not be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that in Christ you have provided the way of escape from all temptation and from all sin. That all you would have us to do, Lord, is to yield ourselves to you, to present our bodies to you as living sacrifices. Due to your mercies, and which is our acceptable spiritual service of worship. And Lord, we thank you that you're willing to take us as we are. Thank you that you're willing to, to indwell us and to live your life through us. And we thank you, God, that your life is our very life. It is our protection, our strength, our all. And we ask, God, that as we look at your word again today, that you would minister to us, teach us, and that you would be honored in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you can turn your Bibles back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And um, I'm being a little ambitious this morning, but my hope is to finish up chapter 12 and then 13 and 14. So we'll see how that goes. I, again, just want to, um, don't know if I'll have another opportunity later on, but just to, again, just ex- express my appreciation for each of you and your desire to, to honor me in my old age. Um, 60 years old is incredible. Um, I really didn't think I'd live this long. I'm thankful, though, to the Lord for all of his many, many blessings to me. And, um, and this fellowship has been and continues to be a very significant part of the Lord's blessing in my life and in my family's. And um, people often ask me, how do you do both things? Um, preach at Bernie Bible Church and, and, and lead his hill. And um, it really has not been a burden. It has been, um, God has sustained, but 
really it's not been to anything great about me, far from it, but um, it's just been easy um, because of the folks here in this church, and, and I just truly am very, very grateful for the privilege. I've many times said, um, you know, the scripture says, regard others more highly than yourself, and that has never been an exercise in faith for me in this church, and I just dearly appreciate each of you. I told our students that a number of years ago, I was out at a restaurant with some students, and one smart aleck said to me, um, you know, Charlie, you could, you're pretty close to ordering off the um, seniors menu. <laughs> and I said, you're closer to ordering off the children's menu than I am. All the... But I can't say that anymore. That's amazing. I told the students, I said, I still feel like I'm 20 years old. We get smart alecks every year. Cause I, and no sooner than those words came out of my mouth than Olivia sitting right there in front of me on the corner said, well, you don't look it. <laughs> so I appreciate that ministry, Olivia. Thank you. For that. Keep me humble. Anyway, let's look at, let's look at the text. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want to um, just go back, not stay here for very long. These are, these are hard passages. I'm telling you, if I'd written the Bible, these passages wouldn't have been here. But the Lord knows what we need. And it occurs to me that none of these passages are here in order to correct us in having done the same thing. But they're here to prevent us from doing the same thing. And that's why I read this morning from Romans chapter 6, because that is a preventative passage. Present yourselves to him. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Give yourself over to him. And there's no need for any of this to be repeated in our lives today. There's, in, in Christ, because Jesus is in those who place their faith in him, and he is the sinless one. And he is absolutely sufficient for every circumstance of life. There's simply no excuse for making the choices that David made. And so these passages, I believe God has put them here to guard us and to protect us from going the same way. But it is not enough to say, I'm not going to be like David. <laughs> That's like saying, I'm never going to be like my dad. Right? Right? And you end up being just like your dad. And so everybody knows me and my dad says, there's clone, and, you know, clone one, right, following after his dad. So I'm, one man in the church here said, I saw your twin today, and I knew he was talking about my dad. <laughs> and so it's not enough just to say, I will not repeat the mistakes of the previous generation, parents or whoever. We need Jesus. And so... All of these things, the, the sin that God reveals from the lives of other people throughout the Bible, it's not so we would wag our finger and say, how could anybody do something like that? It's so that we would see that we could do something like that and worse. And to turn us to Jesus, who is the only confidence that we can have that we will not repeat 
what we've had displayed in front of us. So with that said, I want to come back to chapter 12 and verse 10, where God says through Nathan, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now again, we were here last Sunday, but I just want to develop this a little bit more in, in lieu of the coming chapters. The sword will never depart from your house because you used the sword against Uriah. But it's not here that God is saying, this is your punishment. That I am going, what you did, I am going to do to you. I don't think we should look at the consequences of sin as being punishment. It is simply the law of the harvest. This would, it would be better to look at this and saying, you, what you did, adultery with Bathsheba, murdering Uriah, I am not going to stop the consequences. You brought the sword down, and I am not going to remove the sword that you have brought into your experience. So this isn't so much God's punishment as it is just letting David reap what he has sown. I came across some quotes in my study for this week. One says, the pain of the harvest eclipses the pleasures of the planting. This is really, even David murdering this man, it was predated, it was, that action was just, again, another small step which all began, as we've seen, with David not yielding to God his desire for women. And he's been in the habit for the last 20 years of just taking whoever his eyes were pleased by. And then it came taking another man's wife and then killing that man to cover up his sin. It all began with an unyielded area of his life. David was was sowing, sowing to the pleasures of his flesh. And now he is reaping and finding no pleasure in the reaping. Another writer said, Nothing concerns me more than today's propensity for using grace as a tool to justify sin or take away the pain of its consequences. God is simply letting David experience the consequences of his own choice. This isn't God stepping in and saying, I'm going to pour it on you now, you dirty, rotten sinner. No, God has forgiven David. He says that in these verses coming up. You sinned, I have forgiven you, I have taken away your sin, you shall not die. So this is not God just just putting his thumb on David. This seems to be... God is simply letting David reap what he has sown. That is how life works. Confession and forgiveness in no way stop the harvest. So how is the sword a consequence of polygamy? That seems like a stretch, but it's not. Because David's Polygamy was not based in a yielded heart, not based in God's design. It was a man living after his own flesh. And that resulted in Uriah 
being killed by David, and it will result in his family members, his children, taking up the sword within their own family because they too are living by their own flesh and not in yieldedness to God. So that disposition of being unyielded can manifest itself in lots of different ways, but it all has the same root. I am not going to say yes to God. And for David, began with polygamy. I came across this writer who said, polygamy is just Greek for a dunghill. Polygamy is just Greek for a dunghill. David trampled down the first and best law of nature in his palace, the law of marriage. One woman for one man for all of life. David trampled down the first and best law of nature in his palace, and he spent all his after days in a hell upon earth. David's palace was a perfect pandemonium of suspicion and intrigue and jealousy and hatred, breaking out, as we'll see in these next two chapters, into incest and murder. It was into such a household, if such a cesspool can be called a household, that, Absalom's David, that Absalom, David's third son, by his third living wife, was born and brought up. Can you imagine being a child, being raised in this kind of family? Eight wives, minimum of ten concubines, children by almost every one of them, and that's your family. It is not surprising that it is a household of violence, of hatred, of jealousies, enmities, covetousness, pride. How could it be anything other when all these wives are in competition with each other? Is it any surprising the children would be in competition with each other when there's an maybe an unspoken but certainly real presence of animosity and competition between those wives, that there wouldn't be the same animosity that breaks out among the children. David set it all in motion by his simple disregard of God's design for marriage. I don't think it should be lost on us that we're doing the same thing today. And how we have trivialized marriage and made it so easy to jump in and jump out. And then we wonder why society breaks down as it does. After the rest of this paragraph here where God says the child is going to die because of the blaspheme that's, that you have caused... And David being told that he will not die for his sin. We told, we're told that the child does in fact die. David grieved over the illness of the child until the child did die. And then David broke his fast and resumed his life. And he said in verse 23, But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. We take this as one of the only a couple places in the Bible where there does seem to be indication that babies go to heaven when they die. 
Um, David himself fully believed that he would be in the presence of God when he left this earth. And it does seem that David is saying that he would see this child. But there is not any clear, again, statement where it just absolutely says babies go to heaven when they die. Though I think a very strong case can be built for it. But we want to move on. Verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Boy, God's grace. He doesn't, this is a woman who, who all the wrong things have been done between her and David. And yet God doesn't leave her barren. Gives her a son. And specifically, we're told, God loved that son. And sent word through Nathan the prophet and named him Jedidiah. God gave him his own name. We always know him as Solomon, but Solomon has two names. One given by David, which means peace, and one given by God, which means beloved of the Lord. This was a special child in the eyes of God. And God told David... We know this from 2 Chronicles, that this will be the child who takes your place. Then at the end of the chapter, 26 through 31, we're told that that Joab finally defeated the Ammonites, broke through and and, um, the the siege that had been um, at Rabbah, and David comes down to to, um, um, capitalize on the victory and takes the crown, puts it on his own head. God's grace. David has, has sinned. Adultery, murder, and yet we now see God's grace, which is often the case. Defeat, and God gives victory. Too many times when we see God's grace in the midst of our sin, God will show grace. We're tempted to think it must not be sin or we wouldn't be experiencing God's grace. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's God's grace that David wins this city. Troubling verse in verse 31 where it says, He also brought out the people who were in it, and he set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln. Thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. The King James actually makes this even more harsh and makes it sound as though David sawed people in half and cut them all up into pieces. And those that he didn't cut up in pieces, he burned them. Um, probably now those that, that look at the, at the Hebrew text here say this is probably not the way to take it. That is really what's being said is that David put these people to forced labor. And so some of them cut trees, some of them cut stones, some of them made bricks. But David made forced labor out of these people probably the best way to take that. So it's not as harsh as some of the translations make it. Chapter 13, I'm not going to read all these details. Oh, my word. It's very clear what happened. There is a young man named Ammon, David's oldest son, who thinks that he's in love with Tamar, one of David's daughters who is the brother, who is the sister, I'm sorry, of Absalom. But Ammon and Tamar don't have the same mother. 
So they are half brother and sister. And Ammon knows he can't have her. But he's not satisfied with that reality. And why should he be? Again, I wanted to say concerning consequences for sin. Should not leave this point out. These are natural consequences to what David has done. All these next chapters. But it is not to say that these individuals are not personally responsible for their actions. David cannot take responsibility. He cannot say, I am the cause for my son's sin. David has opened the door, but his son will willingly walk through it of his own accord. We need to understand this very clearly when it deals with sin and its consequences in our own lives. There, yes, is a law of the harvest, but no parent should blame himself for the choices that his kids make. We, this is, again, it's a, it's a delicate line to draw, I understand. We can be bad examples. We can give the wrong idea to our kids of what is right and wrong. And our behavior can encourage them towards sin. But every person is responsible before God for his own actions. And we all know ungodly people whose kids turn out great. Saul was one of them in 1 Samuel. He produced a Jonathan, one of the finest people in all the Bible. But Eli... The priest produced two sons that God says, I'm going to kill them. And now David is producing sons that are really not any better than Eli's. It doesn't mean that David made his sons do this. They made their own choice. And they will be held responsible before God. God they will not be able to say God to God, well, what else did you expect? You know what my dad did? And God can say, I gave you grace not to repeat the sins of your father. And if as a child, if we've grown up in a home where we've seen things that are not honoring to God, we've seen our parents make choices that were ungodly, we are not doomed to repeat their mistakes. The blood of Jesus Christ is greater than the sins of our parents. And there is no sin that his blood is not sufficient for. We can walk new lives, clean lives, and not repeat the mistakes of those who are before us, no matter what the environment was we grew up in. Because Jesus' blood is more than sufficient. So Ammon has a cousin whose name is Jonadab. Jonadab, we're told, was the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And he was a very shrewd man. So he says to Amnon, what's the problem with you, man? You just look sick every day. And he goes, well, I'm lovesick. I want my sister and I can't have her. So Jonadab, being the shrewd man that he was, never said to her, well, just take her. 
he knew, I think, that he would have, that would have come back to haunt him if he had actually said to his cousin, just take her, after all, you're the king's son. But he did say, act like you're sick. And when your dad comes to check on him, just say, could I have my sister come and look after me? And then the implication is clear enough. When you're alone with her, you can have her. And so that's how it all played out. And Amnon had everybody leave the room. And when he was alone with his half-sister, he raped her. She begged him not to. She even said in verse 12, she says, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where can I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, and he will not withhold me from you. It is against the law of Moses for this to take place. It is incest. I don't think David would have allowed it to happen. I wonder if she is just buying time. Go ask dad. Knowing that David hasn't come so far away from the Lord that he would give permission for this. But it would give her an opportunity to escape this terrible situation. However, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she and he violated her and lay with her. Then Ammon hated her with a very great hatred for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And we shouldn't be surprised. In Genesis chapter 34, Jacob is in the territory of Canaan And his daughter, Dinah, goes into the city of Shechem to visit the people there. She had no escort. She had no brother. And she was raped while she was in that city. And the man who raped her, his name Shechem, he came out to her father and her brothers and said, I want to marry your daughter. That man was a pagan. And he was more virtuous than David's son. This was nothing but lust. Lust demands. Lust will not wait. It is absorbed with being satisfied. Obsessed with satisfaction. It is unwilling and unable to be denied. It thinks only of itself and its own fulfillment. It is unable unable to even rationally anticipate the consequences of its actions or to care about them if it could. It only wants one thing, fulfillment. Love is everything else but that. And we've all known those stories of people who've been willing to forfeit everything because of love. Amazing. Young couples that find out, even while engaged, that one maybe has terminal cancer or will never be able to have children. And they say, it doesn't matter. I'm not in this for what I can get out of it. I love you, and that's all that matters. I'll never forget the day that my brother came home 
He had leukemia. He was in remission when he and his wife got married. Started taking chemo again because of the, of the um, leukemia. Hair was falling out, so he went to the barber just to have his head shaved. He was already losing a lot of weight, and now he's got a shaved head. He did not look well. My brother had been a tall, dark, handsome man. The kind of guy that walked in the room and every head turned. Women and men. And he walked in the room with that bald head for the first time. Looked awful. And I thought I'd encourage him. Hey, Kojak, how you doing? Old TV show where the main actor was bald. Didn't encourage him. His biggest fear was how his wife was going to respond when she saw him. And she came around the corner and with no hesitation threw her arms around him. He didn't need to say a word. And she just said, I never married you for how you look. And he cried like a baby. That's love. Lust knows nothing about that. If it has to be fulfilled, if we have to have our way, you can be sure it is not God moving you. Certainly not his love. So he throws her out, never has anything more to do with her. And her brother, big brother Absalom, he's really, really mad. And he goes two years and never says a word to his brother. David knew what had happened. It says in verse 21, now when David, King David, isn't that interesting, King David, don't just say when dad heard or when David heard, but when King David heard all these matters, he was very angry. And he did nothing. Now that's a big question mark. Why did he do nothing? I believe that we're told he is king because he has an obligation as king to punish a rapist with death. But as a dad, he may be thinking, how can I do that? And he feels a great dilemma. How can a dad kill his son? And as king... It is the law of God. He does nothing. And Absalom bides his time. Two years go by. Absalom is shearing all the sheep. It's a time of celebration. And he says, Dad, I want you to come down. I want you to be part of the celebration. Well, David can't go anywhere without a lot of people coming. And he says, Son, it's just too many. You'd be overwhelmed. Uh, We'd be spending all your profits right there in one party. And he goes, no, I'm not going to come. And so Absalom goes, well, then send Ammon. Now, what was he? David, why would he do that? Why would he ask? Why would David say yes? It may be that what Absalom 
the guise that Absalom was, was putting forward was, if the king can't come, then let the king's firstborn come. And it's almost the same thing as having the king. And David says, sure. And as soon as Ammon's away from the palace, and all of David's sons are there, Absalom tells his servants, kill my half-brother Ammon. And all the sons ran for their lives. David heard the false report that all the sons had been killed. But here comes Jonadab again. He goes, uh-uh, don't worry, David. Only one of your sons died. Absalom's been planning this since the day that Tamar was raped. And David's heart longed for Absalom because Absalom fled for his life, went to Geshur, where his grandparents and mother were from. And he stayed there for a couple years. And David wanted his son. Joab knew that David wanted his son back, but how can you bring back your son when he's now a murderer? And so Joab gets this woman from Tekoa to come and play out this scenario that was false and saying, my son killed my other son. Now the murdering son is the only son left, and I know he deserves to die, but what's going to happen to his poor mother if they take the life of my guilty son? And David says, nobody's going to bother your son, I promise you. And so she pressed it a little bit more. And David says, I promise you not one hair of his head will fall to the ground. And then the woman says, well, king, you're the, you're the problem here. Because your son killed somebody. And you won't pardon him. But you'll pardon my son who killed somebody. How come you can't pardon your own son? And so David said, Joab put you up to this, didn't he? She goes, yep, you're wise. He did. And so David brought Absalom back. Verse 21 of chapter 14. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I will do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. So he came back. Verse 22, Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. And then, verse 24, However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house, and let him not see my face. So he brought him back, but would not have fellowship with him. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. And after a couple years of that, Absalom had enough. And so he tried to get Joab to come to him. He wouldn't come, so he burned down Joab's fields. Finally, Joab comes, and he says, I want you to go to my dad and tell him that, that he needs to see me enough of this nonsense of being separated from him. And so Absalom went to see his dad. Verse 32, the end of the verse. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face and let me um, and and if there is any iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So when Joab, Joab came before to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So they made up. Doesn't seem to be that there was great, any great reconciliation there, but at least the pretense of it. Absalom murdered. It was premeditated. David spent one hour, maybe at the most, thinking about 
his adultery with Bathsheba before he committed it. And then his murder of Uriah also happened in a matter of a few days. Still premeditated. Absalom spent two years plotting his revenge. David recognized his sin, asked God for forgiveness, called it evil as God called it evil, and God forgave him. Absalom felt justified in what he had done. There is not a hint of remorse or repentance with Absalom. The people of Israel didn't condemn Absalom. So why should Dad? He never repented. He never asked for forgiveness. And he, in fact, seems to expect forgiveness and restoration. He even demands it. Make Dad have an audience with me. He demanded forgiveness and restoration, not on the basis of the law of God or on the character of God, but on the basis of his own sense of morality and his own popular opinion held by the majority of the people. How much we do the same thing. I deserve forgiveness. I deserve the grace of God. Why should I have to suffer the consequences of my sin? How is that forgiveness, we say? But if we are truly broken, truly repentant, there is no consequence of sin that we would complain about. In fact, Lamentation says that. How can any man offer up a complaint in view of his sins? doesn't matter if everybody else thinks what I did was justified. What does God say? What was David to do? How can he balance this demand by being father and being king? You know, that's a conflict that existed only in his own mind. God made him a father and God made him king. And there was no real conflict. And again, it's a point that we don't always get as believers in Jesus Christ. Our duty and our obligation is not to our children first. It is to Jesus Christ. And David forgot that. At least four questions come to mind that maybe David had on his mind. How can he punish Absalom when he is himself guilty of murder? And David had no good reason for the murder that he was guilty of. Secondly, how can he give reprieve when the law is not David's law, but God's law? How can he let him off? Third, how can he restore to fellowship Absalom when Absalom has not even acknowledged the wrong of what he has done? Fourth, how can he ignore the opinion and wishes of all the people? Back to the first question. How can he punish Absalom when he himself is guilty of the same sin of murder? This gets to the question of how can a parent discipline their child for the same 
mistakes or lesser mistakes than what they themselves are guilty of. We have to remember, it is not our innocence that gives us the moral ground to discipline our children. It is our charge before God. And there is no parent who is totally innocent. We are all sinners. And if we could not discipline because of our sin, then no child would ever get disciplined. Right? We discipline because it is God's charge upon our lives. And when a parent refuses to discipline their child, they are neglecting, they are derelict in their duties before God. Sometimes we just have to tell our kids, I've made the same mistakes and greater. And it has cost me dearly. And I have come to God and I've asked him for forgiveness. And the last thing I want is for you to repeat what I've done. I am not disciplining you because I'm better than you, holier than you, but because I love you. And I do not want you to repeat what I've done. David seemed to have this false guilt. I don't know for sure. I'm no psychologist, but we have to own our guilt. And David did in chapter 12. I have sinned. But now he seems to be paralyzed from disciplining his own children when they're repeating the same things that he's done. Which tells me, has David really accepted the forgiveness of God? that he seems so paralyzed, so unable to discipline his children. God's, our sin, forgiven by Jesus Christ, should not paralyze us or preempt us from acting as we should in the lives of other people. It is God who judges and disciplines. And when in his place, as a parent, or in society, whatever it would be, We must not acquiesce. I love that big word. Somebody said that was the sin of Adam, a sin of acquiescence. Eve said, here it is, it's good, go ahead. And he was just passive. And he listened to her. And he took. He acquiesced. And how often we do the same because we still bear the guilt of sin that's been forgiven. If we are yielded to God, we will not yield to sin. Nor will we yield to the sin in other people's lives, and we will not yield to the history of sin in our own life. If we are yielded to God, we will not yield to personal sin, anyone else's sin, or even the history of sin that we might have. False guilt is a condemnation of self, and it results in passivity when confronting sin because of our own past. False guilt is taking responsibility for the free actions of others that we never desired and never encouraged. False guilt. And I wonder if David is just not eaten up with it. How can he give reprieve when the law is not his law but God's? And the answer is, he can't. We cannot forgive what God condemns. And we cannot condemn what God forgives. God's law is to be our law. Even God cannot set aside his law. 
So who do we think we are? God himself cannot set aside his law. I make all kinds of laws at his hill, right? I'm a director of a Bible school. So we make a law, 1030 curfew. And so some student will say, well, change the law, stupid law. I could do that. God can't change his laws because they are fixed and unchangeable as he himself is. So he says, I can fulfill them, but I cannot just ignore them. And neither can we. How can David restore to fellowship a son who won't even acknowledge his sin? He can't. He cannot. And God cannot restore us to fellowship when we do not acknowledge our sin. It's broken fellowship until the sin is acknowledged. And then the fellowship is immediately restored. How can David ignore the opinions and wishes of the majority of the people in the nation who says this son should not suffer for what he has done? He must ignore it. He must listen to what God is saying, even though it could cost him his son's life. These are not easy things. David must not continue to do nothing. Finally, David has this dilemma between being a dad and being king. And I feel for him. So many men have been there. I think of those pastors who have adult, not even adult children, but children that are adult children that are deserving church discipline. But the pastor, as father, cannot bring himself to do anything. And the church may say, this person cannot continue to come to church and live the life that he's living, calling himself a believer. And maybe that pastor saying, but he's my son. She's my daughter. You can kick him out of the church, but I'm not going to kick him out of my house. I understand the sentiment. But we can be sentimental where God is not. And it is a dangerous place to be. Our first priority is not our kids. And I can't help but think our kids will do better when they are not raised as little prima donnas. Not raised with the idea that the most important thing in this home is you. But raised knowing the most important thing in this home is Jesus. And we're going to honor him. And there may be a come a time, sadly, when you're destroying what we're about. We may have to ask you to leave. Great heartache. David may have had the personal ambition, some historians believe this, to make Absalom king. Maybe why David waited so long to make Solomon king, because maybe David was really not convinced Solomon should be king, even though God had said so. And that may have been playing into this as well, this whole passivity. I don't want to lose Absalom. He's the one that's got the most potential to be king. 
Joab certainly thought so, and Joab knew men. It may have been that David's own personal ambition for his son conflicted with God's will for how to treat his son. Passivity toward family is dereliction of duty. If we do not lead and influence our children as God has intended, somebody else will. Our passivity is teaching our children. Number one, it is teaching them that God's word doesn't matter. It is teaching them that God doesn't need to be feared and obeyed. It is teaching them that our authority is greater than God's authority. When God says something has to stop and we don't say anything, we're saying our authority is greater than God's. And our passivity also communicates that what we are not condemning, we are approving. We must speak. We must speak into the lives of our children. Discipline them lovingly, humbly, because we know our own sin. But not reneging on what God has given us to do. A life yielded to Christ never needs to be this complicated. A life yielded to Christ will not guarantee that our children will turn out right. But at least our children will look back and say, I have no excuses because I had a mom and dad who lived a life honoring to God as they lived lives yielded to Jesus Christ. I'll close this in prayer.